6 to 7 p.m. Sport on with Tabiso Musia. Hi, good afternoon, uh, Tabiso and uh, your listeners. Thank you for the opportunity, and uh, I hope uh, you're still keeping safe and uh, supporters and everybody else is also doing the same. Yes, of course, uh, we're missing football, and we are aware that everybody misses football, and our supporters are wishing to see us back on the field of play. And um, talking about uh, going back uh, uh, to training, um, from Kaiser Chiefs' point of view, we are still on a lockdown, and uh, the plans are afoot to prepare ourselves in case we are permitted uh, to go back uh, to training. We are currently embarking on, you know, a situation of ensuring that uh, we go back uh, to training when everything is safe and uh, allowed to do so by the authorities. As far as um, our supporters, yes, we are aware that they've been asking questions and they've been bombarding you with uh, questions. And also on our social media, they've been asking if we are back or not. No, we are not back. And as always, once we are back, we will make necessary announcements so that we keep our supporters informed. For now, we are asking everybody to continue to observe uh, the rules and regulations of lockdown level three and uh, to be safe, uh, to sanitize, keep safe distancing, uh, the two meter uh, safe distancing, as well as uh, washing hands uh, with uh, soap. Let's meet once everything is uh, allowed to do so. We can't wait, uh, Amakosi, to meet you. We can't wait to play football and entertain you. Goodbye. Kosi for life. That's all that you just forgot at the end there. But good evening, everybody, and thank you for joining us on SAFM Spot on uh, tonight with me, Tabiso Mosia, Katla and Timothy producing the show. Patrick Munana is our technical producer this week. And the clip we've opened with is from uh, arguably the country's biggest club in terms of numbers and support in current APSA Premiership log leaders, Kaiser Chiefs. A lot of the Amakosi faithful have been asking us what's happening at Naturena during lockdown and if the team is back in training after the picture they saw on social media yesterday. And that was the communication officer Mr. Vinamaposa who was just clarifying that for us and he says they can't wait to do what they do best but at the moment they're still in lockdown and putting measures in place uh, to allow the team to return to training. Remember uh, sporting bodies have uh, 14 days to show the minister that they can adhere to the regulations and then they can return to training. Uh, Tonight on the show we are talking football. We are starting our celebrations and remembrance of the 2010 FIFA World Cup which was held right here in South Africa 10 years ago. Amazing how time flies. We use this flashback Friday slot to reflect on the careers of our sporting stars and also to teach the young ones about our sporting history. I have a nine-year-old who refuses to believe that South Africa once hosted a FIFA World Cup, let alone that his dad covered it. Even when I pull out pictures, he's still baffled. So tonight, our guest is a member of the Bafana Bafana class of 2010, Matthew 
booth. Uh, he caused so much confusion and had international media feeling sorry for him, especially during the Confed Cup in 09, because whenever he touched the ball, the fans would say booth. And then the international media thought the only white player in the squad was being booed by these uh, rowdy fans here in the stands. So we just want to look back with Matthew at his career and also just get his... Uh, um, how, how does he look back at the 2010 FIFA World Cup as a player, somebody who was there in the moment? I mean, how much does that mean for him? So he's going to be our guest tonight on SAFM Sport On. And thank you uh, to Matthew Booth for being able to join us uh, tonight. Also, it's such short, no short notice. Uh, but um, you can send us your voice notes to this number, 061-4104-107. If you prefer to send uh, the voice notes on WhatsApp, 061-4104-107. Any memories that you have of Matthew Booth, any memories that you want to share with us about the 2010 FIFA World Cup, uh, please uh, send us those voice notes. If you prefer to call, the number to dial is 0891-104-207 and our SMS number is 41391. Tabiso on It's our pleasure then to welcome a man who served the country with distinction whenever he was given a chance to don the green and gold. Also kept in the under-23 side at the 2000 Olympic Games in Sydney. And we're going to roll back the clock with him and find out how does he look back at his career that took him to Russia um, after turning, also turned out for Sundowns, of course, and uh, and um, Cape Town Spurs, was it, yes, here in South Africa. Matthew, good evening, sir. Thank you very much for being able to speak to us on SAFM tonight. I hope you are well. Evening to be so, yeah. No, great uh, great to be on the show again. Uh, and uh, yeah, good evening to, to yourself and your, your listeners. Thanks, Matthew. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Before we look back at your career, Matthew, I saw this week, uh, I had this week actually, uh, that you guys had formed a body and organization with other former players, Brian Baloy and, and, and Stanton Fredericks. I heard you doing an interview on the radio. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, thanks for the opportunity. It's um, I was going to give it a shameless plug in any case, <laughs> but um, yeah. So Brian, actually, you know, we pretty close. Um, myself, Brian, and Stanton, a couple of other guys from our class of two thousand, and he mentioned that it was it had been twenty years, you know, and I, mm. I was astounded that <laughs> time had flown by so quickly, and uh, we thought we better do something and, and celebrate it. So the first phase of the project is to celebrate the the class of two thousand and mm. and what we the small achievement that we. That we had um, during that uh, culminating, you know, after that six-year plan that SAFA signed off on, um, and the second phase is to to help uh, players and ex-players um, with uh, education opportunities and investment opportunities. Um, I think that's uh, you know you hear day in and day out uh, the statistics with regards um, ex-footballers in particular, and we want to try and create a, a situation where uh, players can transition smoothly from. From playing into into the afterlife, what we call the afterlife, yeah. and and this is for all players, not just the class of two thousand. Yeah. So initially, for this year, it will be um, focusing mainly on the class of two thousand, and then um, uh, progressing forward, it will incorporate uh, any any player, uh, male, female, uh, player, ex-player, um, and yeah, if if people are interested, they would they feel feel free to go on to. Our website uh, that's been created has got some great content on there already, and mm. that's what, I, what what we've been working on during lockdown. It's giving us giving us an opportunity to put up some great uh, content interviews, uh, pics from from back in the day, mm. and it's uh, safl dot uh, South African football legends, um, yeah, safl dot and we're on social me- social media as well. Mm. And it's nice that we've. Um, <coughs> 
got in got in hold of uh, virtually all of our uh, ex teammates from around South Africa and the world, and they've all committed to the to the project. So that's that's great. That's awesome. And is is it also maybe a platform to, for your voices to be heard? Yeah, so uh, we've created profiles for all the players. Um, we've advertised, you know, what they're up to, their businesses, um, their coaching badges, and um, you know, we've, we we're going to be conducting many interviews um, and and yeah, providing a, a voice for them. Um, and hopefully, the younger players or current players can sit up and listen and not make the same mistakes that we made. <laughs> Yeah, talking about that, how does Matthew Booth look back at his career that even saw you play in Russia for about seven years? Yeah, um, mixed emotions. First of all, first of all, I'm, I'm I consider myself to be extremely fortunate. Um, I was never the most talented player in my team. You know, from when I started playing when I was five years old, there were always you know players who were better than me. Um, mm. But what I what I did work on was um, I realized my weaknesses. Uh, I made sure that I was on time. I persevered. I was determined. I was competitive. And that's what I keep on. That's my mantra to young players these days, you know, uh, because the talent pool is so close, so tight, that often it's those kind of characteristics that will set you above the rest. Mm. Um, and, I, and I look at players like, uh, you know, Wayne Roberts, Janet Hartley, um, uh, OJ, you know, guys who are, who are just a thousand times more talented than me. Um, but they they fell by the wayside because of certain aspects, you know, that they couldn't control. Mm. And and young players have got to realize that, you know. Uh, there's more to just being technically good, you know, technically great. Um, and that's what I have to preach to my two young boys as well, coming from a, a middle-class, upper-class sort of family. Um, a lot of those types of kids fall by the wayside when they get to 15, 16 because they have different, many different distractions, you know. Mm. Um, so it's something that I preach all the time. Um, and yeah, when I left school, I, I really didn't know what I was going to be doing. And luckily, football came along. Um, at the age of 17, I got approached uh, by Cape Town Spurs, uh, scouted, and and I just followed that path. Um, I was very lucky enough to to have uh, mentors such as uh, Ronnie Zondi, and Michael Jacobs, yeah. um, you know, guys like David Modise who who guided me along and, and took me under their wing, you know. Um, and then again, when I moved to Sundowns, having guys like uh, the late uh, Joe Smachalejo um, there to do the same, even though we were playing in the same, competing for the same position, you know, he, mm. he showed me the way. So in that regard, I was, I was fortunate because not every player has that kind of uh, mentorship these days. So, are you, did you did you set out to become a professional footballer? No, no, not at all. Um, I I always loved the game. I loved playing rugby. I loved playing cricket at school. I, I played table tennis. You know, uh, anything <laughs> with a ball. I used to play. Um, and my school didn't offer football at the time, uh, like under most apartheid uh, sort of Model C or government uh, schools, white government schools, they didn't uh, uh, really offer football, which was a pity. But I got my football fix at the local football club, which even during the 80s was a mixed um, club, uh, which was uh, chaired by my my father for 20, 30 years. Um, And so that's where I got my fix, you know, Um, my football fix. And... Uh, there was a, there's a time in everybody's uh, 
sporting career where you've got to make a choice. And it's normally around that age, you know, 16, 17, where you've got to focus on one particular thing. And um, the fact that Mish Davre uh, spotted me at the Bay Hill Tournament, uh, which is a very prestigious uh, junior tournament in Cape Town, um, you know, set my path, uh, you know, and um, I had to give up um, sort of the rugby and cricket uh, path and, and chose football. <laughs> wow. We were actually having a discussion a couple of weeks ago. Even last night, it actually came out on the show. Somebody was talking about just the lack of white players in the league. Um, is it a concern for you that there are not as many white players as they used to be back in, in, in the days? Is it something that we should be worried about? Um, no, not necessarily. I, th- I think we should be worried about uh, generally middle class and upper class kids falling by the wayside. We lose a lot of those kids at, at 15, 16 years old. So it's not necessarily a color thing. I mean, mm-hmm. let's be honest. Nowadays, we have a lot of black kids who have never been to the township before. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> times are times are changing, um, and I feel just like in Brazil, where the where the kids from the favelas are, are more hungry and determined. It's, it's no different here. You know, kids from. Uh, let me give you an example. I I grew up with um, Elton Maring, who came from Hanover mm. Park, uh, one of the most dangerous areas in in South Africa. You know, and he he would always say, Matthew, when I was young, you know, as a as a male, I had two choices: either it was football or gangsterism. You know, and luckily mm. he chose <laughs> football. Um, so in in those types of instances, a lot of the times the kids from your lower LSMs don't have as many opportunities uh, or, or, or distractions as perhaps um, your middle-class, upper-class kids. So I don't like to think of it as, as a color issue, mm-hmm. um, but more of a class a class issue. And we have to work against that. You know, we have to offer football at private schools. You know, mm-hmm. it's a big gripe of mine. You know, why don't all private schools around the country not offer football? It's the number one sport in, in South Africa, in mm-hmm. the world. You know, and that, that's definitely got to change. Yes, and we were actually speaking also to the South African Schools Football Association President, Mr. Manja Shuzma-Zibuka, and he was telling us that their biggest challenge as SASFA is that these Model C schools or so-called Model C schools just don't offer football. And the other big challenge for them is that those that offer football don't want to play matches in the townships because they're raising safety issues and they don't want to travel to go play away games um, outside of, of, of where they are. And it was a big challenge for SASFA when, we sp- SASFA when we spoke to them. But we are talking to Matthew Booth, to those who've just joined our conversation. We're looking back at his career we're also going to look back at world cup uh, 2010 and uh, let's go through some of the voice notes that have come through on 061-4104-107 good evening i'm just curious about matthew's journey especially as a white kid playing soccer in south africa and then the second question is what advice would you give to soccer players on how to manage their finances and life after soccer. Charles in Bloemfontein. Good evening, Tabisa. Good evening to Matthew Booth. Uh, it's uh, Libra here in East London. Now, in 1993, you played in the Bay Hill Under-19 tournament for Fishwook, where you were spotted by Cape Town Spurs coach Richard Gomes, who saw a lanky youngster flying into tackles half-heartedly and invited you to train with the club's youth. What impact did uh, Richard Gomes have uh, in your career, especially spotting you uh, um, at a very, very young age. Uh, so what impact did he have in your career, uh, especially uh, especially concerning time? Thank you very much, uh, Tabiso. 
Evening, dear member Tulani from Milan. Great guest there in studio. This man speaks football. He's looking forward to the future. What they are doing is something great. But can you please ask him, doesn't he think that clubs need to take care of the players? Just like maybe like, let's say Ajax. When you are young, they make sure that they take care of your money, they take care of you, advise you on what to do. But most of the players in other teams are not taken care of. Don't see he thinks that it's a lack of culture and mentorship from those who are at the top to take care of the young ones. Thanks. Okay, thanks Tulani. Thanks for those voice notes, guys. I think that last one and one from the first voice note related about finances, Matthew. Is it the responsibility of the clubs to teach players about finances and what advice do you have for players to look after their finances? Yeah, so in the past to be so, um, you know, I would always always have a go at the clubs, 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 clubs. You know, why don't they look after players? Why don't they give educational opportunities uh, to them? But in actual fact, it's not the clubs. Um, responsibility to do that you know we've got to come to the reality of um, that club clubs are owned by businessmen and they're interested in making uh, money mm. or or and or it's an ego thing um, you know to be able to own a club they are not interested in a player once he stopped playing because you you don't become you, you you're not an asset anymore so players must realize that first and foremost Basically, you are on your own <laughs> uh, once you retire. And and from a psychological and an economic uh, uh, point of view, it's very, very tough for a player to have been in the spotlight for so long, to be fit, uh, to have a good physique, to have a lot of attention from girls, to have money, a regular salary. And all of a sudden, that gets taken away from you. And and players have got to fear for that uh, point, and and it must be a healthy fear. So what I advise to those who want to listen, um, because not everybody listens to the older uh, pros, unfortunately, um, is that as soon as you sign your first professional contract, sit down with a, in, uh, uh, an investment um, banker or a financial advisor. Uh, and and get some solid advice on how much you you put away um, for 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 the afterlife. Mm. And not many of the guys they, they think it goes on forever, and it doesn't uh, to be so. You know, it comes to an end. Um, the statistics are both in Europe and in South Africa, and this is not a South African issue. It's not an African issue. It's a Euro, it's a world. It's a global issue because most footballers around the world come from your working class uh, backgrounds. Mm. Um, that 75% of, of re- retired players five years after retirement will be either uh, divorced, bankrupt, or uh, drug or alcohol dependent, or a mixture of those. Mm. And and if you look at the NBA or the NFL recently, I watched a docu uh, called Broke, which I would recommend to, to mm-hmm. anybody to watch, especially uh, professional athletes. Mm-hmm. The NBA and NFL uh, stats are... Almost, almost very are, are exact. In fact, mm. um, so it's it's a global phenomenon. Um, but you can you can you can lead a horse to water, you know. Uh, but at least you you have given them the opportunity and advice. You know, it's up to them to 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 either take it, and that's what the South African football legends are aspiring to do. At least give them opportunity to 
to, to get some sound advice and opportunity to, to make a difference and not become a statistic. The other question was uh, from Bloemfontein. Charles says he was curious about your journey as a white kid playing football. Was there a culture shock for you maybe when you got into these mixed race teams? Um, no, not at all. Um, as I touched on earlier, I, I was fortunate to be to have been assimilated from a very young age at Fishhook. Um, you know what what used to happen was uh, my my dad, who was chairman there for a long time, um, there was a, a, a white suburb and a coloured township called Ocean View. Uh, you might recognise a lot of talented players that come from Ocean View. Uh, Emil Baron, Frank, Franklin Kale, etc., etc. A lot of guys mm-hmm. came from there who I played with at, at Fishhook. And um, the local police during apartheid were not happy with the fact that Fishhook Football Club was actually uh, allowing uh, these colored kids to come and join the, the team. Um, so there were always issues at the club, you know, but mm-hmm. but the football um, industry in South Africa, uh, as you may know, Tabisa, has been has always been quite progressive in any case. Mm. You know, way back in, I think, 69, uh, Orlando Pirates and Highlands Park attempted a, a game in uh, Swaziland. In 72, I think, they attempted a, a, a mixed um, federation uh, league, a mixed race uh, a league, you know. Mm. So there's always been that, and I've always been quite proud of that, that fact. And from you know, within the eighties, I was playing with with with, with colored kids. You know, uh, when I was thirteen, fourteen, uh, we used to go into into Manenberg and play. Um, and going back to the private schools, you know, that that's I'm very sorry to hear it because that's nonsense. Because football has always been has broken down uh, class and race. It's always been like that. So uh, for private schools not to want to go and play in in the townships, that's ridiculous. You know, they've got to they've got to do it. It's a great um, social experience for for both sets of kids, mm. um, and and I, and I would definitely encourage that to happen. The question from Libra, good one. Libra was about Richard Gomes and Bayhill. I mean, how do you describe the role that uh, Gomes played in your career? Yeah, so Richard um, was the um, they. During that time, they used to have the Celtics Colts, which was the under-19 uh, team. It was basically the MDC back in the day. Um, and we always used to play against Hellenic. That would be our rivals. And, and Richard was the coach at the time of the Cape Town Spurs under-19 team. And uh, he um, initially spotted me at, at the Bayhill tournament. And uh, I remember him dragging uh, Mr. Avray to the tournament to come and watch. And... Uh, as soon as I, as soon as I had finished my last game, he pulled me off the field and and went to introduce me to Mr. Avray, who was the head coach at the time. And uh, the following year, I was playing for um, the under-19 Cape Town Spurs team. Um, yeah, so he he was very uh, influential and ended up becoming uh, my first um, uh, player representative and looked after me and. I uh, did the deal with um, Mamelodi Sundowns. Uh, he negotiated with uh, Natasha at the time. So, yeah, he set me on my on my journey. Uh. We were having a debate. Yeah, we even took a bet on it before the show. Yeah, with the producers, whether Matthew Booth was part of the Cape Town Spurs team that won the Bob Save in the league in '95. Um, so I was. I, w- I didn't play for them. No, I was part of the the senior squad because uh-huh. uh, I was training with them at the time. Yeah. Uh, but I was I was basically playing that year <laughs> under 19s. Um, so I joined them in '94 when they uh, actually 
in my mind, Wonder League. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, the following year, they didn't win the double. Yeah. And, um, you know, that was a, a team which had some phenomenal players in it. Uh, then when David Rodwell decided to sell the club, Afterwards, um, a lot of those players left and the younger players were thrown in the deep end. And um, myself and David Kahneman and the like uh, played our first uh, uh, season in 1996 mm. uh, when most of those players uh, left the club. Yeah. Uh-huh. There goes my 100 bucks. I've lost that bet. <laughs> <laughs> and then talk to us about your time at Sundowns, um, the first time at Sundowns, Matthew. I mean, how do you look back at your time there before you went overseas? Well, I mean, you know, again, uh, very, very fortunate. You know, I touched on it. Um, Sundowns had just won uh, two leagues, two championships in a row. And um, I had the unfortunate task the season before of trying to mark a, a Rafael Chuku. Um, and uh, I didn't have a particularly ga- good game, uh, but, but for some reason, I think Natasha and Angelo saw something and uh, they decided to to sign me um, I was going through a bit of a legal battle with John Kometos and Cape Town Spurs and managed eventually to to get my free clearance Um, and that's when I introduced Michael Murphy uh, to the to our game of football Um, and then subsequently Andre Kutsia you know the Kutsia ruling in 2001 Mm. uh, happened and um, I fell into a arrived at a Sundowns team which was brimming full of confidence and superstars um, you know what can I say the list of players was just endless you know I was I was in awe of the likes of Roger Futumba um, you know Mambush Eric Kramasike you know the centre back centre back pairing of Joe Smachalejo and Mike Manzini um, I had to fight for my place in that in that regard and uh, Paul Dollars was was in charge, you know, who was very flamboyant. Uh, he played a, a three-five-two, which suited my game at the time, and uh, gave me an opportunity to play some regular football. And um, it culminated with a, a, a run in the Champions League uh, in 2001, and we managed to get to the, the final. Um, so I've, I've, I'll always have good memories of of, of that time. Yeah. There was a former Sundowns player we spoke to on our show. I can't remember if it was Chuko or Futumba because we've both spoken to both of them. But one of them told us that you met your wife at Sundowns through Alan Amogu. Is that correct? <laughs> yes, that's right. Um, <laughs> so uh, she was looking after, her and her friend were looking after Alan's uh, daughter who was um, visiting him from, from Paris. Uh. And um, he, he took me back to his place and... Uh, yeah, I was met at the door by by, by Sonia, and then yeah, the, the, kind of the rest is history, really. <laughs> First impressions last. <laughs> yeah, I, I owe him a coffee or two. Yeah. <laughs> you, you you've mentioned um, Michael Murphy and the Andre Coutier ruling, and I've spoken to M- Michael Murphy about this previously. But just to refresh our memory, Matthew, what was the issue? There was Cape Town Spurs trying to get money for selling you, even though they'd sold the club. Yeah, so. Um, uh, Cape Town Spurs um, was owned by John Kometos, Seven Stars was owned by Rob Moore, and when they amalgamated to form uh, Ajax Cape Town, there was obviously a franchise left over. So they created Mother City. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, uh, Rob Moore was not a, a fan of, of me as a player, um, and uh, you know there was some very talented players at, at Seven Stars, Eddie, Eddie Dinia and uh, Andili uh, Sitkaba, mm-hmm. and uh, 
they they were in favor of them going to uh, Cape Town and they wanted me to go to Mother City. So my argument was, oh, I don't have a contract with Mother City. My contract was with Cape Town Spurs. Um, so they tried to force the issue and I decided uh, to get hold of uh, Michael Murphy, who was a, a labor lawyer at that time. And uh, I showed him the contract and the, the PSL constitution and he, he kind of couldn't believe the, the scenario, you know, because as you may remember, we were treated like slaves um, back then uh, and even when our contract ended the club still held on to us uh, we, there was no free agency at the time um, and so I got him involved in football and eventually I got my free clearance um, and and moved to, to Sundowns and subsequently to that and this is something which I think the football industry especially players are not really um, they don't show enough gratitude towards a guy like Andre Kutsia because a lot of players now earn a lot more money because of what he did. And Andre Kutsia and Michael Murphy uh, took um, the PSL and SAFA uh, to task and eventually won, won this ruling. Janet Traverso in 2001, uh, now known as the Kutsia ruling, you know, ruled that uh, once players' contracts are finished, you are free to move. Uh, as 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 Bosman did yes, uh, yes, in yes. Europe, um, I think it was a decade earlier. Um, so yeah, I think uh, I think players nowadays should be aware of what what he did uh, for us. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, yes. so it was a very interesting time. And, and Michael, as you know, has has made uh, made it his task to become a, um, an expert on in, in the football field. For those who just joined the conversation, we are catching up with Matthew Booth. You can send those voice notes to 061-4104-107. Uh, Lipita says, one player that you can never boo as his surname rhymed with boo. He was a good servant of the game and a leader by example. And uh, Papa Lale says, I'm very glad that Matthew Booth is being celebrated on radio tonight. Stemi Somagwaza says, this was my favorite player. I can't wait to hear this legend uh, here on the show. Well, you are hearing Matthew Booth right now. Matthew, you also went to Wimbledon. What was the story there? Did you get to play at Wimbledon? No, I didn't. Um, it was uh, something, um, a time in my career, which I, I didn't want to add to my CV. I'd rather <laughs> forget it. And thank you for reminding me. Um, <laughs> but um, So I, after the Olympics, I had, a, I had a very good game against, probably one of my best games against Brazil. Um, uh, the 3-1. Average, average games against uh, Japan and Slovakia. But... That game against Brazil showed some interest, uh, created some interest from West Ham, and uh, through Richard Gomes, who knew Harry Redknapp at the time, they arranged for me to to go to West Ham. I had a very good uh, one-week trial, and they were very keen on taking me. Uh, unfortunately, Natasha asked for, I think, one and a half million pounds at the time. I only had a handful of the final games, um, and so it was an enormous amount at the time. Uh, I couldn't believe it, and so. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to to make the move, and I, that was probably one of my lowlights of my career. Looking back, I was really gutted. Um, and as a consequence, um, we then I think we're playing in Abidjan in the Champions League, and all of a sudden she um, she 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 got in touch with the South African owner of Wimbledon, a guy called Popo, and arranged for me to to go uh, to Wimbledon on loan. Um, and again, this is uh, uh, 
some good advice for younger players is that when you do go on trial, make sure that the coach or the team that you're going to knows <laughs> that you're coming. <laughs> because this wasn't the case for me. And I arrived at Wimbledon and Terry Burton, who was the coach at the time, looked at me, you know, with this uh, kind of disinterest, you know, because yeah. uh, he clearly hadn't been consulted about it. Yeah. And so I knew that I was in trouble. And um, I spent those three months in the reserve team. Uh, I picked up some interest, ironically, from Nottingham Forest. Um, but ultimately, I came back to, to uh, Sundowns after those three months. And you, you keep referring to the 2000 games in Sydney and the match against Brazil, obviously, that we all know. But after that, the team lost to Slovakia 2-1. And there have been suggestions or rumours that maybe there was a strike before that game or not. Are you able to clarify that for us? Yeah, no, no, no. There was definitely no strike. Um, I think um, what undid us was our lack of our missed chances against Japan. If if anybody remembers that game, yeah, Japan the two missed a lot of chances, you know. Mm. I was at fault for their winning goal slightly. I, I got caught out of position and um, tried to was trying to cover Aaron McQueen at right back when I shouldn't have. I should have just kept my zone. And silly mistakes like that uh, cost us again at um, against Slovakia. You know, um, we had a disappointing loss to Japan. Um, Brazil before the game came into the changing room with their drums and dancing, and we thought to ourselves, "Oh, okay." You know, you want to take us lightly. You think you're going to beat us this easily? All right, we're going to show you. you know? So we rose to the occasion in that in that yeah. regard, and we really taught taught them a lesson. Um, and then, of course, we weren't able to raise uh, rise to the occasion again after that great sort of uh, climax. Mm. Um, and Emil Boron got got caught out at the near post twice against mm. Slovakia, but again, it wasn't just his fault. It was. You know, we got caught on the counter. We were a little bit naive. Again, we missed opportunities, you know. So it just didn't go our way. Um, but looking at our journey and looking at perhaps even our first pre-qualifying game against Togo, we did have Lady Luck smile on us, you know. Um, we drew 2-2 in that first game in, in Togo. We had our own goal and a deflected goal that went our way. So it kind of all balances out in the end. You know, um, I always say when you look over a season, you know, fans tend to complain about penalties and handballs and things not going their way. But ultimately, when you when you have a a journey or a run of games, I think generally it always always balances out. And um, we just unfortunately didn't have the the rub of the green against uh, Japan and Slovakia. You know? Okay, well, we've got a call on the line. Let's go to Scully from Devon. Good evening, Scully. Thanks for joining us on our conversation. Uh, Jabiso, thank you for bringing uh, Matthew Bootman. You know, it's so nice hearing him after. It's, it's like I'm seeing him on the field, man. <laughs> My question to him was just on, uh, was he ever offered to play for Durban City or <laughs> Addington, Durban United, any time, uh, you know, in the early stages? Uh, that 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 was uh, only I want to know. Tell me so, and and and, and while I got the chance, man, man, I tell you, God, what I heard of, you know, on 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 Bongi Guala show, I was taken aback. Uh, bye. Myself, because I uh, I was told not to call yesterday, you know, in on um, on the morning show. Yeah. And then the whole day went like that, man. Hearing your story on the other night on Bongi show. Oh, oh yes. God, man. Man, I, I, 
I'm crying now at the moment, man. You know, Billy, I'm sorry to switch the topic, man. And yeah. thank you for bringing Matthew. No, no problem, Scully. No problem, Scully. It's, uh, it happened five years ago. It's a story that I shared on air when I was assaulted and beaten up by the police in 2014. Uh, to cut a long story short, if you missed it, I went to court over 30 times. And last year, we finally got a verdict and uh, the cops were found guilty of assaulting me. And they were given a five-year suspended sentence. So um, at least uh, we got justice at the end, Scully. Thanks for that. Betty, you want to know if you ever tempted to go play in Durban? Um, <laughs> no, to be honest with you, I haven't had any interest um, yeah. in, in my career. I, I kind of, um, you know, coming from a coastal uh, team, being, you know, having been born in, in Cape Town, uh, and this is not necessarily a healthy thing, but we all tend to try and make our way to the big city. <laughs> you know, Joburg, Pretoria. Yeah. That's where the money is, you know. If you want to make a career, if you want to make a, a bit of bit of cash, you got to move up. Yeah, and I've, it's another gripe of mine. I think um, uh, post-apartheid, we f- the football industry have attempted to try and centralize uh, our game, and I don't think it's very healthy. I mean, uh, my two young boys go to um, a football club here on the West Rand, and they've associated themselves with um, uh, TS Galaxy. Yes, mm-hmm. Galaxy. Um, before the lockdown, they had a they had a, a trial, an open trial. Mm-hmm. They they had three thousand kids uh, over the weekend, and and a number of these kids came from from as far as Cape Town, mm-hmm. Pumalanga, you know, traveling to 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 Johannesburg with no place to stay. Now that that is not a healthy thing. We've got to have uh, centers of excellence all around the country. Yeah, I saw the same thing when I went to Supersport. They had huge numbers at their trials. Their boys coming from all over uh, the country there. I think they probably had, I think out of, okay, it wasn't that huge, but probably out of between 500 and 700, there were 500 midfielders. All of them were central midfielders and you couldn't find left backs and other positions. But anyway, let's not digress. Let's go to the voice notes. Evening, Tabiso. Speaking of Luzugo from PA, uh, can you ask the man, the, the man, that man is a great leader. He was very good at playing defense. He was commanding the defense very well. He was a strong man and also I used to enjoy watching him and he used to sing booze. <laughs> anyway, can you ask him about um, that team of 2002, the Olympic team you're speaking about? How uh, strong that team was because they were like good players, the Uchabu, Ostentin, Abramdeo, Nupini, and Ombazo, as he mentioned there, Nukanamea, Omatombo. That was a strong team. And also with the Sun Sundowns team that was in Kef Cup final against Al Ahi, I think that was also a strong team that we've got the likes of Gift, Kambamba, Alisumu, the Sky Striker from Cameroon. Also, Masile and, and Penangun and other guys. Can you ask me about those 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 two teams? Thanks, boss. Boo. Good evening, Mzanzi. What I like about uh, Matthew Booth is one of the most humble players in South Africa. Matthew Booth, uh, I like him so much. He's very humble, man. Very, very humble. I've never seen him talking too much in the pitch. Thanks, guys, for those voice notes. We have touched on a few of those uh, questions. But what about the coach of 2000, Matthew uh, Sheikhs Mashaba? How do you describe working, or how was it working with coach Sheikhs Mashaba? Well, first, first of all, you know, I'm a, I've always been quite a strong, I want to say strong critic, but a critic of, of Safa and the way that uh, they run our game, you know. But I like to think that it's, it's um, always been constructive. You know, yes. I want the game to progress. It's not just a case of... You know, hammering them. 
And one of the the, the great things that they did under Molefi uh, Olifant was to sign off on that six-year plan. Um, so the core of that 2000 team that qualified for the Olympics actually started off six years before, uh, where we qualified for the um, Under-20 Na- uh, African Nations Cup. We came second in Morocco. Uh, we then uh, qualified for, we were the first uh, South African national team to qualify for a World Cup, uh, um, Under-20 in 97 as well. And so for that core of that team to have those experiences under the likes of Sheikhs all the way is something that should be replicated again. And it mm-hmm. hasn't been done, you know. Um, and, and even uh, any professional club should take cognizance and note of what what we achieved. Uh, so my point is, you know, consistency is key. You know, if you're forever chopping and changing coaches and playing staff, you know, you're highly unlikely to to, to achieve anything. Mm-hmm. And so to have a, um, a coach for the likes of uh, Sheikhs with us by our side for that journey and not forgetting um, you know, Kenny, Kenny and, yes. and, and Tabu Dladler, yes. they were also very important to the whole team dynamic, um, gave us that opportunity to to achieve that small success. Um, my one disappointment was not progressing uh, further and playing more for Bafana Bafana, and I think a lot of those players um, should have had that opportunity as well to progress further. Talking about Bafana Bafana, let's get into 2010 FIFA World Cup now. But before we do that, let's hear this. Okay, this was the team singing before the opening game, 11 June 2010, against Mexico. Which song is that, Matthew? What were you guys even singing? <laughs> I've got no idea. You don't put me on the spot. I just used to uh, dance and mouth. Uh, <laughs> yes, you were actually my, my... dancing in the clip that we saw. You were clipping. You were not singing. We saw that. <laughs> but before that, you played Confed Cup. That was when the international media had the boo chance and they thought everybody was booing you. What was your reaction to that? Yeah, well, I, I had to explain to them that in actual fact um, it was just by chance that I was the only uh, pale guy in the team, you know. <laughs> um, I, you know, generally, uh, South African football, we uh, the demographic is, is quite evenly, equally represented in our football teams. Um, you don't have to look very far to the 96 squad, you know. Mm. Um, so just Unfortunately, guys get sucked into optics, you know, and visuals. Um, I even had one of the referees, I think, against uh, when we played against Iraq, uh, run Jeez. up to me in a panic and say, "Hey, wh- why, why is the crowd booing you?" You know, I think he was going to write in his report, um, uh, you know, about um, pr- pr- probable racial <laughs> abuse. So I had to. Uh, all I did was I just turned my back and I just showed him my name on the back of my shirt because in the heat of the moment I couldn't explain everything to you. <laughs> that was a bit funny but I mean Spanish and Italian journalists who had their leagues had uh, during that time also taken stick for racial abuse uh, kind of jumped on the bandwagon and without actually asking me um, assumed that it was racial abuse. 
and um, they kind of had egg in the face when they realized actually what what the crowd was doing. And in actual fact, you know, it's it's tradition amongst football fans to do that. Um, mm. The late uh, John Shoes Mashweo, Mark Fish, you mm. know, Rue, mm. you know, so it took a lot of explaining. Obviously, the local journalists knew, knew what was going on, but I remember standing uh, after the game in the press uh, line uh, for about an hour after each game trying to having to explain to the journals, you know, what was actually going on. And that was the first time that the foreign press had really descended on South Africa en masse. Um, so it was quite quite something. Yeah, I remember that. And going into the World Cup now, were you anxious or nervous about making the squad or were you confident since you were part of the Confed Cup team? I was very anxious and, and nervous. Um, and in actual fact, if, unfortunately for Morgan Gould, uh, if he hadn't got injured, mm. uh, I wouldn't have made the squad. Mm. Um, Pereira I, I was a favourite of Santana's um, I played regularly under him as soon as I played my first friendly under him um, you remember that we failed to uh, qualify for the Nations Cup when we got beaten by Nigerian for Elizabeth mm. and that was I sat on the bench for that game and that was my first Bafana call up in six years uh, having been stuck away in Russia um, that was disappointing for me because I felt I played some of my best football in Russia over the six years and never getting a call-up was disappointing. And only out of desperation did they really call me up. And then, you know, I took my opportunity. My very first game I got and I impressed and um, I got my place back in the team. I played all five games in the Codfit Cup. And then I had an ankle injury. I went for an operation um, under Stojkov at, at Sundowns, uh, which he wasn't too impressed about. I wanted to get ready for the World Cup. Uh, and during that time out, uh, Bafana went on a six-game losing spree. I think they went and played friendlies in Europe, mm. if I remember correctly. And they lost all six of those games, which gave the association a chance to get rid of Santana <laughs> and bring back uh, Pereira. And um, from the from the from the minute I, I sort of interacted with him, I knew that he could have other plans. But I didn't throw in the towel. I tried to change his mind. We had six months of of camping leading up to the World Cup, and I desperately wanted to to get into the squad. But it came you know came down to really Morgan Gold uh, getting injured and and myself getting just squeaking in there as as the fourth uh, centre back. Sure. Um, it doesn't help when your captain is 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 a uh, defender too. A defender, defender as well. So you're playing for one spot. Um, so I knew how goalkeepers feel, um, and you know I just I gave support where I could, uh, gave them my experience, and and tried my best to 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 guide as as one of the more senior players. Um, and yeah. And on Twitter, Snetem Mbata says, always been a fan of Matthew, humble player, so much wisdom. Luzuko says, I'm listening as well. Booth was just so marvelous. Leadership skills inside and outside the field. So much respect uh, for him. And I think that's what he's talking about now, that in 2010 he had to play a role, even though he wasn't getting, getting game time there. You worked with Santana. You worked with Alberto Pereira. What was the difference between those two, Matthew? Um, the one could speak better English than the other. He was... You know, Santana, I think, was very much, you know, if you take away the language point, Santana was very similar to uh, Shakes in a way, where um, he was, he was, he had that personality, you know, he was a player himself, uh, and he had a lot of character. Uh, He couldn't, his problem was that he couldn't express himself uh, properly, 
And I felt during the Confed Cup, we played some pretty good football. We went toe-to-toe against uh, Spain and Brazil, who were number one and number two in the world at the time. Mm. Um, but yeah, he wasn't he wasn't going to last long, uh, considering the, the, the press uh, were not on his side at the time. Uh, and of course, that six-game uh, losing streak, was he was never going to stay. Mm. Uh, but I still have very fond memories about him. Uh, Pereira, um, to be honest, I think Pizzo and Jairo Liel did a lot of the work. Um, he was a typical English manager in that he would simply oversee a, oversee a lot of what was going on. Mm. He didn't really get involved a lot in the training session. Um, but yeah, very, very experienced guy. I mean, he's won the World Cup after all. Um, but yeah, he, he he didn't see favor in, in he didn't favor me in particular. But that's no reason to 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 knock the guy, you know. Um, there's I keep on telling youngsters as well, you know, who about perseverance, and I keep on reminding them that in the PSL there's 16 different coaches with 16 different opinions, you know. So uh, you know, one coach might not might not like you, but the next one will. So yeah. that's an attitude that I've always uh, tried to try to maintain. Okay, let's go to another voice note here. I remember in 1999 when I was doing Form 1 in Lesotho, St. Monica's Secretary High School. I had a big peak of booth in my room. And my mother used to ask me, I wonder you'll be also a football player. The way you love this man, I wonder. Alfred in speaking. Thank you so much. Thanks, Booth. Good evening, Tabisa, um, and good evening to Matthew as well. I'd like to know, I'm not sure how old his sons or his children are. Uh, would he allow them to take part in the sport of football? Would he give them a chance to choose whether they want to go into football or not, or maybe any other sport? Okay, uh, this is Kaba from the Eastern Cape. Thank you. Thanks, Kaba. He wants to know about your boys, Matthew. You did touch on them earlier. Yeah, so uh, I've got an 11-year-old, uh, Noah. Um, I think he's he's got something in him, um, as well as my oldest, um, who's 15. Um, he plays in the GDL, which is probably, you know, so they play against Sundowns and Chiefs and, and, mm. and Pirates. Uh, it's one of the few really tough uh, junior leagues in, in, in South Africa. Uh, so both of them have... Uh, great potential, I feel. My oldest is also a very good 400 and 800 meter runner. Oh. Um, he's uh, recently come back from from the states and now is into his basketball. So you know, that's <laughs> it's at that age when you're 15, 16. You know, you have you chop and change your interests. You know, um, so as a parent, I keep on hammering into them about hunger. You know, perseverance. You know, etc. Don't don't get knocked down so easily. Um, but I would definitely encourage them to, to, to take up the sport if given the chance. Um, I think uh, the opportunity to go overseas, um, to build character, learn a language, uh, learn a different culture, um, get injured and have to go back to an empty apartment when it's uh, minus 10 degrees with snow falling outside. I mean, that's, that's the type of character that I'd want my sons to attain. Um, and I would like to see more South African players um, take the opportunities uh, similar to what your Andili Jalis um, had, Keegan Dolly's, Sungus, you know, take the opportunity to go and get overseas, get out of your comfort zone. So, yeah, I would definitely want them to to to, to have a chance to become professionals, but 
you know, I also also uh, remind them about the dangers of um, of of becoming a professional footballer and the afterlife. So, education first, uh, supplemented by sport. That's for sure. Yeah. There's a gentleman called Mbazo on Twitter, and it's not Aaron Mokwena. He says, can you please ask Matthew, uh, while playing in Russia, did you encounter racism? How was uh, life in Russia? Yeah, so um, I played in two provincial towns, and uh, the football teams were kind of the stars of, of the town, you know. Um, so it was a little bit of a false situation. So if I was walking with Sonia down the main street, uh, we wouldn't get abused we, they, we wouldn't you know people would be looking at me um wanting a photograph or an autograph or wanting to chat or you know so it was a bit of a false situation for me but when i did interact with perhaps uh, students from from africa or asia uh, in moscow or st petersburg they did they did often complain of of racism um but again it's where you go uh in in the city at what time you go in the city um that you always have to be wary of. I think that's something that, as travelers, you, you, you know, wherever you go in the world, you've got to be careful of. Um, but from a football point of view, there was always a small element of your ultras um, within uh, your Spartak Moscow, Tseska uh, Moscow, uh, Zenit, who used to have a go at the opposition black players. Mm. Um, and... You know, if you listen to John Barnes about racism, you know, he he reckons that that's not really personal racism. That's racism which is trying to put you off your game, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if that very same player was playing for their team, he would be admired and, and uh, you know, uh, there would certainly wouldn't be any abuse. He would only be encouraged. Um, so, no, your answer is uh, at yeah. street level, I never had an incident, not once. Okay. Um, but from a football point of view, on the field, um, we I, I remember one game, we actually threatened to walk off the field in solidarity with one of our players from Cameroon. Um, so yes, it did, it did occur, but it wasn't, it wasn't such a strong element in the game that would put one off, but it did, it did happen, certainly. And in your more established leagues, like in, uh, you know, in Italy, uh, even in the UK, you know, it still happens, unfortunately. Yeah. Okay, we're going to have to leave it there, Matthew, because of time. But I want to end with this message from Paniza Lutuli, who says, Matthew is one of the few South Africans who fully grasped, grasped Madiba's idea of a rainbow nation. I respect the guy for being a true South African. What a great personality he is. Much respect. It goes with that voice note that said, I had a poster of Matthew in my bedroom. And even Sizwe says, Matthew felt like he was just one of us. If it wasn't for the color of his skin, if you hear him speak, you will think that he was one of us. And we salute him uh, for embracing the culture and embracing being a South African. And Matthew, thank you for speaking to us tonight. I know you are a late substitute, but we appreciate the time that you've given us. And uh, <laughs> we just wanted to highlight what you've done and give you the respect that you deserve. And most importantly, as you can hear, people have not forgotten and will never forget your impact. And um, just a, a message to your listeners and all the supporters. Um, your your support is, um, is, is sought of and, and appreciated greatly. Uh, without you guys, uh, our sport would be non-existent. Um, certainly in the professional era and, and we really appreciate your, your support and encouragement. Thank Great. you for the kind words. Great stuff. Go check out that website, guys. They've got something going on with Brian Baloy and Stanton Fredericks if you didn't hear the beginning of the show. SAFL.co.za South African Football Legends.co.za It started by the class of Sydney 2000 which was captained by Matthew Booth.